0: This is Gabrielle Arie Sanders welcoming you to this edition of The Jewish Journey, where we're sharing a few more steps with you on the path to spiritual growth and literacy. Today, we'll explore a question that frequently comes up from very earnest people who wonder, with no temple, no sacrifices, and no priesthood, how do Jews get forgiveness today? So let's go back in time. Back in my missionary days, I would occasionally speak to Jewish people about the rather uncomfortable subject of sin. And it was uncomfortable because... Most of the Jews I spoke to were very secular, and they simply had little interest in discussing the subject. Contrary to popular impressions, most Jews today, while certainly highly intelligent, are very illiterate when it comes to the Jewish Bible and to the rituals of spirit that have kind of adhesively held Jews and Judaism together while other ancient cultures have simply vanished. And it's an odd twist of history that the average Jew today knows so little of his or her heritage. There are clear reasons for it, once understood, it's not a judgment, it's just an observation. As a missionary, my settled belief was that Jews today had absolutely no hope of salvation unless they believed, as I did, that the Messiah had already come. And some of the evidence was that without the Holy Temple, without the priesthood and the sacrifice system, with the shedding of animal blood for atonement, there could be no forgiveness for sins. I'll mention some passages that, in relation to this, it be an interesting study, there's a very well-known one that I'll save for the end, which is Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. It's probably the best-known of passages that I, as a missionary, used. But let me first state the Torah's position on this. Torah Judaism has long affirmed that blood sacrifice was not the only means by which forgiveness was granted. The Jewish Bible speaks of gaining forgiveness through something called tefillah, which is prayer, tshuva, which is repentance, and through tzedakah, which is charitable giving and charitable acts. All three of these venues are supported in the Jewish Bible. This isn't merely some rabbinic opinion. But before we talk about forgiveness for sins, let's talk about the meaning of the term sin. The English word, I think, is a rather poor translation for several Hebrew words. One of the most common is the word chet, It means to fall short of the mark. It's sort of like taking a test but not getting a passing grade, or maybe shooting an arrow but missing the target. Then there's another word, Pesha, which means deliberately doing something wrong. And then we have the word Avera, or Avera, which is often translated transgression or trespass. This carries the idea of crossing the line somehow. The result is that somebody else is injured by the act of transgression. There are some other words also, but these three are probably the most common. Chet, missing the mark. Pesha, deliberately doing something wrong, and then Avera, crossing over the line. The Hebrew scriptures, in really simple terms, describes two general categories of sin. There's something called willful sin, an action done, the Hebrew says, b'mezid, person meant to do something wrong. And then there's something that's inadvertent, an action done, bishogeg, person didn't mean to do something wrong, he didn't know it was wrong. Now, if I were to do something bemazed, deliberately, back in biblical times, then my way of making things right was not to rush down to the temple in Jerusalem and offer a sheep or a goat or a pigeon and say, okay, I'm glad that's over. I had to make restitution for the thing that I did wrong. Sometimes that involved paying damages and fines. Sometimes it involved punishment by a legal court. Sometimes in very rare cases, it meant capital punishment. I remember once in the 8th grade, I was deliberately acting up in my English class. Poor Miss Deering. I remember to this day, she was so upset. And so she exercised her right to punish me. And no amount of, I'm sorry, Miss Deering, was going to appease her. So she wrote a hefty sentence up on the board, which read, I am cognizant of my transgressions and regret the necessity for these restitutions. And then she said, Sanders, I want this 500 times on paper, and it's due in two days. Well, I couldn't believe this. 500 times? Two days? I was a surfer. Didn't she understand my need to ride the waves off of Cocoa Beach? And now I'll tell you something that I didn't reveal to Miss Deering. When I handed in those handwritten pages with 500 declarations of I'm cognizant of my transgressions and and regret the necessity for these restitutions, I had discovered the wonders of carbon paper. And that cut my handwriting in half. So even while making restitution, I did another transgression. But in principle, though, what, what happened here? I deliberately did something that I knew not to do, and I got punished for it. In biblical days like then, there was no sacrifice that I could offer. I had to make some kind of restitution, along with hopefully being repentant enough to resolve not to do it again. The other major category of sin described in the Jewish Bible, as I said, is something done inadvertently. Bishogeg is the technical term. And the overwhelming majority of sacrifices required in the Torah for sin offerings were things done beshogeg, unintentionally. And you can read up on this in the book of Leviticus, chapters 4 and 5. Now, I'll mention a couple of relevant passages here, but before I do that, let me just say that I cite them with tremendous reverence, not just to support my view. You know, truthfully, my view means nothing. My opinion means nothing. What I say is empty futility compared with what's brought down to all of us in the Manufacturer's Handbook, the Creator's Manual for Good Living, which is the Jewish Scriptures. In Leviticus chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, we read this phrase that says, If an individual person from among the people of the land shall sin unintentionally, he shall bring as his offering a she-goat. So, what's the point here? Unintentionally brings a sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 18, The Kohen, which is the priest, shall provide him atonement for the inadvertence that he committed unintentionally, and he did not know, and it shall be forgiven him. So here's a person bringing an offering, a sacrifice, to atone for something that was inadvertent. In the book of Numbers, chapter 15, verse 27, If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a she-goat within its first year as a sin offering. The cohen, the priest, shall atone for the erring person when he sins unintentionally before God to atone for him, and it shall be forgiven him. Now, the whole purpose of going through the whole rigmarole of an offering for a sacrifice is for something you did unintentionally, was so that you would remember the next time you found yourself in a similar situation. But the sacrificial system as described in the Torah was a vulnerable system. It was highly dependent on some very tangible and very limiting factors. Let me just mention three of them. First of all, there had to be a temple, there had to be a priesthood, and there had to be access to kosher sacrifices. What would a person do if he found himself without those? if there were no temple around, if he didn't have access to a priesthood, if he if didn't have access to kosher sacrifices. Did that ever happen in the times of the Bible? Well, the answer is absolutely. In fact, King Solomon, who was the son of King David, during the very dedication speech at the completion of the Solomonic temple, anticipated this very situation. Let me share with you a short excerpt from his speech that was recorded in Second Chronicles 6, verses 36-39. through So King Solomon is praying, and he says, When they, speaking of the Jews, sin against you, for there is no man who never sins, and you become angry with them, and you deliver them to an enemy, and their captors take them away to a faraway or nearby land, and they take it to heart in the land where they were taken captive, and they repent, and they supplicate to you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have been iniquitous, we have been wicked, And they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity of those that had captured them. And they pray by way of their land that you gave to their forefathers and by way of the city that be Jerusalem that you have chosen and through the temple that I built for your name, may you hear their prayer and their supplications from heaven, the foundation of your abode and carry out their judgment and forgive your people who sinned against you. Now, this is King Solomon Dedicating the temple, he recognizes at some point people could be taken away captive. What are they going to do for forgiveness of sins? Here it's told. It's prayer prefaced by sincere repentance. And they turn and they face the direction of Jerusalem and they ask for forgiveness. No blood sacrifice, no temple, no priesthood. And Jews have been praying this way, Torah Jews, for 2,500 years, as a matter of fact. The prophet Hosea, or Hoshea as he's called in the Bible, was a contemporary of the great Isaiah. He also mentions in chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 of a time, a long time, when there would be no temple, no priesthood, no sacrifice. And this period would culminate in something called yamim, in the end of days. Hosea also prescribed a formula for forgiveness through prayer. He says in chapter 14, verse 2, Hu imachem dvarim, take with you words, Veshuvu El Hashem. Return to God and say to him, May you forgive all iniquity and accept good, and let our lips substitute for bulls. There are three elements here expressed. Contrite preparation, take with you words. Chuva, repentance, which is the returning to God. Shuvu El Hashem is Chuva, repentance. And then thirdly there's prayer which appeals to the divine nature to forgive. There's no blood sacrifice here and prayer is actually an acceptable substitute for it. There are numerous examples of people being forgiven without any immediate or implied context of sacrifices. Take, for example, the people of Nineveh, the city where Jonah was sent, to prophesy against them. He came, he warned of impending judgment, and they repented through three days and nights of fasting. Now, if you've ever experienced one Yom Kippur, imagine experiencing three in a row. Talk about a coffee headache. But there's not a peep in the four chapters of the book about any blood sacrifices to secure their atonement. And another example of immediate forgiveness based solely on confession, King David was confronted by the prophet Nathan or Natan, about his relationship with Bathsheba. This is in 2 Samuel 12, 13. And David says to Nathan, I have sinned to Hashem, to God. Nathan immediately responds, so too Hashem has commuted your sin. You will not die. Now this was in Jerusalem, where David had access to priesthood and sacrifices. Now, I got an email from a listener recently who challenged me with a proof text that I certainly appealed to myself for many years to demonstrate that without blood atonement, there's no forgiveness. I mentioned it in the beginning, Leviticus 17.11, which reads, For the soul of the flesh is in the blood, and I've assigned it for you upon the altar to provide atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that atones for the soul. Now, taken alone, without regard for any context or, or without comparing key phrases here with key phrases that we'll find elsewhere in the Jewish Bible, it really sounds like the missionary could be right. It says, the soul of the flesh is in the blood. I've assigned it to you on the altar to provide atonement for your souls, for it's the blood that atones for the soul. But look at the context of the passage, first of all, not just to Leviticus 17.11, but let's look at 17.10 and 17.12. What's the context? I never looked at this when I was a missionary. The context is don't eat Blood. This is kosher regulations. Why don't eat the blood? Because there's the life force within it. And this blood, not the ears of the animal, or the lips, or the toenails of the nose, has an atoning function on the altar. And so the missionary would say, "Well, look, it says right here, blood on the altar provides atonement for your souls. So try to get out of that one, Sanders." Well, there's a Hebrew phrase here that describes the result of the blood on the altar. It says lecha per al nafshotechem or nafshosechem, which means to atone for your souls. And if we only look at this passage, Leviticus 17:11, 11, in all the Torah, then we would be forced to think as the missionary thinks. But this same phrase or a close variant of it is used in other parts of the Torah. For example, in the book of Numbers, also chapter 17, in one case, we have an emergency offering of incense by Aaron the high priest to stop a plague, and he secures atonement for the souls of the people. Lechaper al ha'am, to atone for the people. In another case, in Exodus chapter thirty, verse sixteen, we have individuals bringing an offering of half a shekel, and it produces the same result: lechaper al nafshotechem or nashotechem to atone for your souls. It's the same wording as we see in Leviticus seventeen eleven. Exactly the same wording. Only there's no animal, no blood, no sacrifice, no altar. It's the giving of a half a shekel. It's giving currency. It's giving tzedakah, charity, in this case to the building up of the temple and it has the same result. So we began by asking the question, is blood atonement the only way that a Jewish person can gain forgiveness of sins? And we've demonstrated very briefly, of course, that the answer is no. Sincere prayer, sincere repentance, and sincere giving of charity, tzedakah, are biblically prescribed actions that produce the same result as a sacrifice. We even have a case in Leviticus chapter 5 verses 12 through 13, where a poor person could offer fine flour as a sin offering with the result that the Kohen would provide an atonement for the sin committed in ignorance. If anything, we can say that blood was one way, perhaps the weakest, that a person gained forgiveness in biblical times. But the principles of prayer, repentance, and charity were clearly the dominant ones. And there's more, much more to this subject. And if you're interested, I'm pleased to provide you with some links to more detailed resources. And we didn't even discuss here the power of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And I want to say finally that we share this information in the spirit of promoting Jewish learning and living. If you're Jewish and you'd like to boost your own Jewish literacy, then I'd invite you to check out a free one-hour private learning session on the telephone. And for more details, just point your browser to jewishworldreview.com forward slash P-I-T. Next week, God willing, we'll explore another question like this. Till then, this is Gabrielle Arie Sanders thanking you for walking a few more steps with me today here on The Jewish Journey.